Welcome to the second series of the Biotech Podcast. In this series, our aim is to introduce you to a host of researchers working on problems within the agricultural setting. Our hope with this series is to show that there is room across the agricultural sector for people with a variety of skills. Agriculture sits on the precipice between the natural and engineered worlds and will have a huge role to play in some of today's greatest challenges. It is said that the more you know about the past, the better prepared you are for the future. For this reason, I thought it important that we delve into how agriculture has changed over the past century, what lessons we can draw from this change, and how we might expect agriculture to change as we move into the future. With me to discuss the history of agriculture is Dr. Helen Ann Curry. She is an associate professor in the history of science and technology at the University of Cambridge. Helen has a particular focus on the environmental and agricultural sciences. As such, there is no better person to lead us through this history to see what insights we can gain. Now for my conversation with Dr. Helen Ann Curry. Can you take us through some of the uh, major changes you've seen over the past hundred years in how we produce food? Great question. Obviously a big question, <laughs> but you. one that's, that's uh, important to answer to, to sort of lay the groundwork. So if we think about the last hundred years, that takes us right to the, the early 20th century. And just thinking now about, about the global north, about the uh, industrialized countries in, in Europe and the United States and, and, and beyond, some of the big changes in agricultural production have to do with um, the increasing use of machinery in food production, uh, also the, the rapid takeoff, um, actually in, in kind of incredible production of, of synthetic nitrogen uh, used in fertilizing crops. Uh, and then in, I'd say the, there's been a, a, a shift in the, the circulation um, of, of crops in terms of where they're produced versus, ver versus where they get consumed. So people talk about food miles a lot. Um, and food traveling around the world is not new in the 20th century. Um, uh, colonial uh, infrastructure before that certainly meant that um, meat and, and other crops um, or other food products were, were circulating. But the scale at which that has happened in the 20th century um, intensified by, by um, transoceanic travel um, and, and, and other mechanisms has, has meant um, greater global circulation uh, of agricultural products. Mm -hmm. Is that uh, essentially feeding demand in certain places or the, wh what is the thing that's caused this massive uh, increase in the, um, the, what people are consuming globally and what were they consuming beforehand? So I think we can think about um, agriculture as having been not local but but much more regional in terms of how it was organized. So um, people would be eating more seasonally uh, in terms of what was produced, say, at the end of the 19th century, um, and would be eating much more the, the um, products of their local region, with the exception of some global commodities, right? So with the exception of sugar, um, which was a, a, a product of empire, uh, for example, when it was brought back to the UK, um, and has always been a long distance uh, agricultural product. So, um, um, but for the most part, uh, those products were the exception uh, rather, than, rather than the rule. Mm. So you've seen these um, changes in machinery, fertilizers, and where foods are consumed. Do the, are those the things that, are, that have essentially shaped the face of what agriculture is today, or are there other things within that 100-year period which we should um, take note of? Yeah, so um, it's really hard to pinpoint any one thing, like changing consumption patterns or changing demand as being a driver of some of these changes. Um, I think... 
uh, overall, we might say that um, dependency on fossil fuel and a, a willingness to, to, to use ostensibly cheap fossil fuels to drive agricultural production, that led down certain pathways that, that have shaped uh, the way that we um, grow food and, and also the foods that we eat. Um, uh, but in a way, and maybe even that answer points to the fact that the system is um, the agricultural system is embedded in a much larger economic and political infrastructures, uh, and that and that uh, we can't think about what causes changes in agricultural production without thinking about that larger um, set of of conditions and circumstances that shape what's possible. So, just to to take the point of nitrogen fertilizer, um, uh, prior to the early twentieth century. Fertilizers were already being extracted and imported um, in, in large part from South America. So I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of uh, the guano islands. No. So, um, this sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, uh, the principal source of soil fertility uh, in industrializing Europe in the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century was bird uh, excrement mined in South America and shipped to Europe to uh, restore fertility to soils that were overworked. That so were this being... was this was prior to the Haber-Bosch process. They used bird shit basically to yes. okay okay. And so and so you had you know an organic source of of fertilizer, um, but one that um, these immense deposits of, of, of uh, uh, um, you know, kind of fertile, rich uh, um, substances to add to soil were depleted fantastically rapidly, yeah. right? And so even in the early 20th century, having only fairly recently discovered these kind of riches of fertilizer, um, there was a crisis of soil fertility. Where, where would that come from? Mm. Um, and so the Haber-Bosch process obviously tied up with the production of its it's being scaled up to the, the levels that um, then transformed. Agriculture was tightly connected, um, not just with the soil fertility crisis, which might have driven the research, but also with uh, uh, the needs of military production um, and using nitrogen in weapons production in World War I. So if we look at why nitrogen fertilizers took off in the way that we did, it's actually really intimately connected with um, military strategy in World War One, right? And so arguably without that impetus, there wouldn't have been the overproduction of nitrogen that then had to be repurposed in new ways. Which got put into, so the Haber-Bosch process wasn't also used in the making of like munitions. It was actually that it came about at the same time as nitrogen being used in munitions? Or? No, no, it, it, sorry, I should clarify there. Yeah. It was central to munitions making. So there was the demand for the, the, the nitrogen, right? Um, and so, um, uh, or nitrogen products. So, um, I th and I raise that example uh, not to, to say anything specific about about um, uh, fertilizer use, although that's part of the story. But to situate changes in agriculture in much global context. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, it sort of mirrors things that are going on in the outside world, and then. Yeah, so you've always got changes from the outside world which will have an effect on agriculture. You can't see it in isolation type of thing. Um, how, in terms of the sort of pressures of the outside world on agriculture today and the problems that you would say are potential or have been arising for the last 30 years, can you talk to any of those? Can you like give your opinion on what they are, where the new pressures are coming into this uh, or the, the catalyst for change, I suppose, is a way of putting it. But where are they? Yeah, I think there's a well. There's a lot of um, researchers situated in 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 science, especially and 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 economics and political science, who are probably better equipped than a historian to, to characterize <laughs> yeah, these. But I think you know when I think about the the sort of long trajectory, things that people point to are our massive disruption of the nitrogen cycle, um, also our running out of phosphorus supply. So we have, over the past 100 years, become dependent on certain inputs that we may not have going forward. Um, and we need to think about that. I think um, uh, the structures uh, or the, 
the patterns of agricultural development uh, in the past hundred years have been very unequal in terms of the outcomes that they produce for different people. So um, we talk a lot about you know resolving hunger and resolving um, poverty in part through empowering farmers, right? Um, we've been working at that a long time, um, and the institutions that we've put in place uh, don't necessarily deliver um, what they say they will. And so I think that's another agricultural concern is or, or problem with agriculture. How do we resolve social inequity um, um, through the on a global scale rather than just? I mean, you were talking like sub-Saharan African farmers versus farmers in the West type thing. Is that right? Or That's true. But if you also think in the UK context, um, you know, there are a lot of people who t who tie the ways that we produce food now, the way that we process food now, to some of the major health inequities that we see in the United Kingdom, right? Um, especially in, in a time of COVID, certain uh, underlying health conditions that might be linked, for example to um, a person's weight then are intensified and if we look back to what you know the, the the sort of whole food environment and how that's shaped by the way that we're producing food what foods are cheapest to 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 make and eat um, uh, so that's another it's not just a global problem it's also it's something exactly local here a national as well as international problem basically what I could also oh, I was gonna yeah, say exactly I can speak to something that is 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 closer to the things that I've been researching and thinking about recently um, does have to do with uh, the the um, biodiversity in the food system and the diversity of the foods that we eat and so a lot of people pinpoint a, a, an area of concern being about homogenization of diets, about homogenization of agricultural crops in, in terms of what we grow. Um, and uh, I think the, the issues there are not as straightforward as we're losing biodiversity um, because, you know, we're, we're also gaining diversity when we breed new crop varieties, so we have to be careful in the way that we, we think about calculating what it means to lose things. Um, but I think it's safe to say that lots of people are concerned about um, whether we're putting ourselves in a vulnerable situation by allowing at least our, well, our, our, our um, crop production, our livestock production as well, to have gone down a path of, of ever-narrowing diversity. Mm. Sort of mechanization almost with, within the sort of sphere of crops. Um, yeah, that's a good way to think about it. In terms of uh, the homogenization part, is that in part influenced by this increase? So you talked about three things being uh, the machinery, fertilizers, and the circulation of food. The problem of homogenization, is that resulting from stuff like fertilizers being used and these crops work better with fertilizers, or, or what causes it? Yeah, as as with other things, I think it's, it's certainly multifactorial, but... Um, there are ways to draw connections between, say, a mechanical tomato harvester and the demands it makes of the tomatoes that it picks, that they be of the same height, that they uh, ripen at the same time, that they be roughly the same size, that they be sturdy enough to not <laughs> smush when picked. Um, and so that, you know, that certain kinds of mechanization drive certain kinds of biological standardization. Um, with respect to, to fertilizer use, um, some of the first crop varieties or um, sort of uh, so, uh, families of varieties, if you will, to go truly global um, uh, were the wheat and rice varieties produced in the 1960s uh, in conjunction with what we call today the Green Revolution. But so the product of international agricultural development and research um, based on a few original strains adapted for different contexts, say Mexico versus India, but sharing considerable genetic material and then widely promoted um, and, and, and circulated um, in terms of their productivity. And their productivity of, of those particular strains of the the so-called miracle rice and wheat varieties of the 1960s uh, and 70s, their productivity was linked to their responsiveness to nitrogen fertilizer. And so they came as part of a technological package where... You, you couldn't just high... have the wheat, basically. You had to have the wheat plus a fertilizer to get the final product. Exactly. Plus the irrigation and 
plus the plus the 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 um, you know government subsidies that let you borrow money or or, yeah. or have the resources that you needed, and so you know a whole kind of package of inputs uh, and and support were essential to the high yieldingness of the varieties. But so so absolutely the availability of cheap fertilizer then made it. Um, potentially more beneficial to have a, a crop variety that responded to fertilizer use, mm -hmm. which then drove crop varieties in the direction of being fertilizer respondent, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So again, this sort of pushing in the same direction in terms of what kinds of things people are growing uh, would be linked to a change that ostensibly seems unrelated, right, yeah. in terms of fertilizer could work for any plant. Well, actually, it doesn't work in the same way for every plant. Yeah, yeah, you're actually better using it for like a dwarf variety of wheat than you are for, you know, like a, a bean or something like that. In fact, you probably wouldn't put any fertilizer on that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, how big an effect did the Green Revolution have on the face of farming globally, in your opinion? That is a fantastic question. And I think it's one that actually people are still debating. Um, um, there are, I think, active camps of scholarship that say the, the changes that came about around the time of the Green Revolution that were extended later with different kinds of agricultural interventions, that those um, saved lives by making it possible to produce more grain on, on less farmland. There are those who say it destroyed lives by um, dispossessing some farmers from the land that they have or um, introducing styles of agriculture or, or kinds of crops that weren't appropriate for their cultural or economic context. And um, where do you I sit? I <laughs> think there's probably some truth to both of those yeah. statements. I think that um, it is it is uncontrovertible that um, that uh, the technological package of the Green Revolution had ill effects for some people um, or had differential effects. It benefited some very much, may have overall increased the productivity um, of agriculture in particular places, um, but at the micro scale, you know, not everybody won, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, trying to, to, to think about, you know, the lesson of the Green Revolution shouldn't be let's have another one, um, it should be how do we uh, get down to the differentiating between um, what happened for, for some farmers and what happened for others? And how do we take those lessons and move with them responsibly forward? How good do you think we are at doing that? I mean, so I suppose a lot of the people who have an effect on things like the future green revolutions will be quite often the researchers who are doing, you know, they, they enable, they create some new enabling technology, like your dwarf variety of wheat. How good are people doing that research uh, at actually taking those considerations into account? I think overall, probably the track record of, of um, sensitive technological development maybe in the whole, on the whole is lacking. Um, but I do, I do think, especially um, um, in recent decades, uh, you know, for example, the International Agricultural Research Centers have integrated um, agroecology, they've integrated in uh, uh, programs specific to gender, for example, to take into account what, what changes mean for different groups of people, right? Um, and so I'm as long as we're building research teams and operations where people who have a lens onto those different, someone who knows the social context along with someone who knows the ways in which certain genes respond to certain kinds of conditions when, when, when uh, included in a new variety, right? I think the ideal is that you want those two groups somehow together, uh, uh, or or both involved, yeah. right? Um, I also, I mean, it's safe to say probably there's not as good a track record of that. For example, in the in in international agricultural research as we might want, um, but I do think that is on the agenda. Um, and so, a so lot people, of I suppose a lot of the time you can actually almost look at it at the. I mean, a lot of the time, so the scientists can you know they can develop their new enabling technology. 
they don't necessarily have to be the people implementing it. So quite often those decisions, I suppose, are made between the stakeholders and your policy makers rather than between the scientists and the policy makers and the stakeholders a lot of the time, or is that incorrect? I mean, I think it's probably dangerous to think that any science is free of politics. Yeah. And so, and so the, the, the real victory, I think, is to see that even the scientists who's just, just out there, you know, um, seeing what they can make a wheat variety do is that is already a political act, right? Making decisions, yeah. yes. Yeah. And, um, and so I don't think it is just a, a matter of doing the right thing downstream. It's a matter of starting at the starting point um, with the idea that what one does is, you know, that, that all these, all of the actors that we're talking about historically and, and in the present are embedded within larger political economic structures that um, create kind of limitations on what they do, right? Yeah. So one of the I things... Yeah. Also starting off with the problem from... I mean, quite often you're starting off the scientific search with a problem rather than just, you know, being curious about what you're going to make. And if you don't have those stakeholders in from the beginning, so if, let's say, you're not actually talking to people in sub-Saharan Africa, then one, you might not be working on the solutions that are important to people or will work within their context. And you sort of potentially end up in a bit of a situation like, I mean, like an example is uh, UTI research, I would say, is an area of science which is very under, uh, urinary tract infections are very under-researched. And they shouldn't be. And there's beginning to be work to get rid of that stuff. But I would say a lot of that is potentially due to the stakeholders who are deciding the lines of research at the very beginning and just maybe a slight an imbalance in that. Yeah. Um, I think um, sociologists of science refer to undone science um, yeah. as this this kind of example. What are the things we should be thinking about um, and that people need us to be thinking about, but there isn't the financial incentive or the state incentive to, to go after it? Well, even the people talking to, to, to the scientists in the first place to incentivize the problem. I mean, a lot of the people looking at this stuff don't know there's a problem out there. And I think if a lot of the time if they knew what the problem was and how it affects certain people, then they'd be more willing to to go and work on it and go and begin coming up with solutions for... But I think there's a crucial, one of the major trends, and maybe this is something else I would point to in a, as, a, as a change in agriculture in the past hundred years, is there has been a wholesale shift in terms of where the funding for research comes from. So in the early 20th century in the United States, um, the 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 government invested in developing an incredible research infrastructure. Uh, it was pork barrel politics through and through. It was it was getting subsidies to, to Midwestern states, right? But it produced the or it you know built up the land grant college infrastructure, the infrastructure of state agricultural research and extension stations. Um, a similar process of building agricultural research infrastructure was happening here in the UK, right? So the early 20th century is when you get the NIAB, uh, that's when it traces its history to. Um, uh, you have what would eventually become the, the John Innes Center. You have the potato virus research station, right? So you have state money going to solving agricultural problems, uh, figuring out ways of production that respond to the needs of, of agricultural constituents. Um, starting in the 1970s, well, starting a bit earlier, but with increasing intensity from the 1970s onwards, that has been not necessarily dismantled, but gradually hived off to private industry. So our agricultural research today is by and large driven by the questions of, of, of private companies, whereas Previously, those companies certainly had a stake uh, and a say in, in research, but it was, it was publicly funded and, and publicly determined. Um, and so, you know, I think about this question of, well, oh, the undone science. It's about people asking the questions. Well, if the people holding the purse strings for, you know, what questions get pursued uh, fundamentally have their bottom, the, 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 the financial bottom line foremost in line, there's only a subset of questions that are going to get asked. So I think that's another historical trend that significantly limits the possibilities of today. Mm, that's really interesting. And you almost get, I mean, you can see 
your most over-dependence on productivity-focused agricultural science, I would say, is something that has existed up to this point. We we know, obviously, far less about um, the stuff to do with environmental services than we do know the stuff to do with how to make better varieties of wheat for the purposes of large-scale production of foods and mechanizations of, of foods. Um, I love the expression pork... Ba- pork barrel politics that's mm-hmm. yeah I, I hadn't heard it oh, before sorry. I have to admit it's, it's a new one which I think I have to an Americanism. no I love it I love it it's great um, yeah so in terms of the sort of these these most of these shifts that you're talking about seem to have gathered large sections of agriculture and kind of got them to do the same thing in different parts. So you've got like the central, almost centralization to a certain extent of a lot of the agriculture we do today. Um, what are the benefits and drawbacks of this that you see, uh, whether it be in the fertilizers we're using, how crops circulate around the world, the machinery we're using, or um, all the actual just diversity of crops and the things we're deciding to go to grow what are the effects of this and do you think that tells us anything about what um agriculture in the future might look like yeah i think you've just even the way in which you just described that in terms of centralization i think something a lot of people who work in kind of food system scholarship talk about is um the kind of consolidation that has happened in in food and agriculture industries. So um, the classic example in many ways is the seed industry, which since the 1970s, so within the space of about 50 years, um, has gradually come on what, what used to be actually a, a, a quite diffuse um, set of public and private seed producers, has become basically three industrial monoliths that operate globally, right? So three, I mean, those are the big ones, and then there's there's um, um, slightly, slightly smaller but still enormous uh, groups associated um, beyond that. Um, but you might think, okay, there's an advantage of scale there. Maybe they're delivering seeds more cheaply. Um, but we might also think that really there's a, there's a concern there about power. Right? That's an immense amount of power that perhaps uh, a very few uh, sets of boards of directors have ultimately over uh, a significant input into global food production. Essentially what we eat. Right, right. right. <laughs> um, so we might think from various different, for various different reasons, we might think that's an undesirable situation. We might think, well, are those firms going to be as responsible, or sorry, as responsive as we need them to be to uh, the, exactly, uh, whether those are environmental pressures, are they going to be as responsive as we want them to be to concerns about social justice? If we are interested in um, equity and diversity, uh, is that what those, those companies can do? Or are they really good only at producing cheap seed, right? So if we want to have a different priority, how do we, how do we, how do we um, actually act on those different priorities, right, yeah. without other actors in the system? So I think that's, that's one thing I would point to as a, as a concern. Do you think that um, maybe there's a potential that cheap seed has sort of one to an extent out this debate because cheap seed is what people value most yes I think that's a really interesting point and I mean if the people that you're talking about are farmers producing even final consumers I mean the price of a loaf of bread in the supermarket is is something that's even it's I'm pretty sure it's cap tracked at like government policy level I thought mm-hmm. but maybe I could mm-hmm. be wrong with that no, I think that's a great. I think that's a great point, and it's one of the main critiques I think that comes back against um, some of the the you know alternative agricultural agitation. I would say you know that that we had the, the activism around around food and around seeds um, is that um, you know ultimately is it better for everyone if food is just as as cheap as possible? I think what that misses is that a lot of things within. Uh, the world of food and agriculture that we think of as cheap are only cheap because we are not actually paying for the externalities, 
right? What so the carbon, the carbon footprint of uh, fossil fuel-based agricultural production is generally not factored into what we pay for cheap bread at the grocery store. Um, and if we were paying the full cost of, of a quart of milk in terms of what, what feeding that cow soy from Brazil has cost in terms of losing the rainforest and not having the carbon sink anymore, you know, if, if we factor all those elements in, we might realize that it's not as cheap as we think it is. Yeah, the sort of almost, I, I, I mean, that's such an interesting idea. And it's, I, I keep envisioning it in my head as almost taking out an environmental loan. And then as in taking out a loan against the environment on, you know, having cheap food today. But have we gone too far with, have we been too frivolous with the budget that we have at hand? And, you know, is this the point that we're going to have to start repaying? some of that environmental loan and, and essentially get real with that within the agricultural um, system. Um, going all the way back to um, inequities on a national level, the other week I was speaking to someone who um, who focuses on a nitrogen fixation in uh, in cereal crops because a large part of that is because um, it costs more to buy fertilizers in sub-Saharan Africa than it does in the UK. Why does it cost more to buy fertilizers in sub-Saharan Africa than it does in the UK? It seems, I mean, for me, I'm like, this is, he's working on really incredible stuff. It's really cool. But why the hell aren't there fertilizer factories in those parts of the world yet? I would have thought that market demand can begin to be created, or that's an obvious sort of, it seems fairly obvious that you put fertilizers out there and you begin to get them, it allows people to grow more and start helping themselves out, but I don't know. That's a tough question, and I don't really have an answer for it, sadly. Um, I'm not sure what the, what the circumstances of that particular context. Okay, fair enough. Um, so, a lot of the work you've uh, done and you've uh, written quite a bit about it is on the context of uh, genetic engineering and what it can potentially mean um, or, or how it might potentially change agriculture. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Genes Made to Order, your book, what it's about and why you think this new age of, of genetic engineering is potentially very important for uh, an inflection point in the history of agriculture? Yeah, so um, the, the book that I wrote um, about the history of genetic engineering starts at a moment in time when I, th I think most people would not think of starting it, which is in uh, the late 1920s. Uh, and that's when the uh, phenomenon of x-ray-induced mutation was first confirmed. So that's the idea that you could, um, through the, the, the radiation produced by an x-ray device, an x-ray tube, uh, you could uh, expose a plant and it would generate a genetic change, and that you might then, as some breeders imagined, use these randomly gen uh, produced genetic changes to develop new crop varieties. So you might ask, well, why was that even uh, thought to be a good idea? Uh, the notion was that finally here's a means of intervening in uh, the stuff that nature has given us over time, the stuff that evolution has produced to try and produce changes faster, uh, maybe changes that evolution didn't, didn't bring about over time in, in various different crops and, and plants. Um, so it was imagined by inducing mutation that you would speed up the the process of breeding. They must have had to have done that randomly as well because I mean you were still at a point where they didn't even know what they were changing to produce the mutations that yes. that, which is weird. <laughs> Absolutely and so one the, the big lesson of the history I, I sort of there are several different technologies you can tell this story about all which rely on randomly induced mutations um, is is the disjuncture between how much was hoped for and how much was promised of new genetic technologies when they were introduced in comparison 
to the 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 actual payoffs on the other side how little change happened as a result and i think the temptation is to say oh well those were just failed technologies right Uh, those didn't deliver on what was promised but what i would say to that um is that if we look at the comparative case of recombinant dna so um what we refer to genet as genetically modified but the idea of a right transgenic changes as opposed to um, the even more recent gene editing. But just the class of recombinant DNA or, or transgenic um, crops, we might say, oh, those, well, those delivered. We grow tons of those around the world today. So it might not, X-ray radiation didn't make a big difference, but transgenic uh, radiation did. Um, except that I think I would go back to the comparison of promises. Um, what was promised from uh, the new transgenic crops when they first seemed conceivable in the 1970s. Um, you know, they were going to be, they were going to fix their own nitrogen. They were going to resolve nutritional deficiencies. They were, uh, you know, the, the kind of host of agricultural wonders that would happen through this new tool um, versus, I mean, basically we've commercialized two traits um, and we've done it across crops. There's BT, right? So um, uh, crops that are resistant to certain insect pests and there's Roundup Ready crops. And those ones uh, resist, are are, um, herbicide resistant. Uh, They're widely used. They've clearly made a big impact on agriculture. Have they delivered on the promises that were made for this technology. And there's a whole host of reasons why they haven't, um, which we could talk about. But I think, you know, for me, the lesson um, from looking at the long history of genetic engineering, starting with these these tools in the 1920s and 30s, and then thinking through what we're dealing with today is like, we should be careful what we promise. And we should make sure that, you know, the the systems and the, the political uh, economic structures in which they're embedded are ones in which we can use those technologies for the things they might be good for, right? That, yeah. that the technology alone, that can't necessarily always uh, deliver what it promises. King, I mean, almost looking at things from a historical perspective, what we have promised in the past and where those promises have ended up, it would naturally uh, be the case that one would be a bit of a skeptic about what is being promised today uh, yeah, in, in, I, nothing, I love that. That's, that's a great like angle. Science reporting of the past to give yeah. you a pause about, about things. One Why? The, what, 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 uh, what, would, what is it? You know, kind of hope springs eternal, and I think that's probably good. Um, but seeing it always, you know, seeing the same promises and the same claims, um, there's a whole genre of biohype, uh, I would say, in which it's, you know, the promises of the new biology which is not a new thing, it's a very, it's a very old thing. Um, uh, those claims tend to circulate around some of the same things. So for example, um, the actors that I, the historical figures that I was really interested in the 1920s and 30s, they talk all the time about accelerating evolution, accelerating evolution. And when I started the project in the early 2000s, it was really fascinating to me. I thought, well, you know, um, we don't really talk about accelerating evolution anymore. It's all about, in a way, like, um, circumventing evolution. Transgenics was all about mixing species that could never have mixed, right? Um, and it has been so interesting in the past, you know, five to seven years with the new gene editing technologies. Accelerating evolution is so frequently what's talked about <laughs> and how finally we're going to be able to accelerate evolution because of these specific ways that we can intervene in a single genome and push it forward. Mm-hmm. And I but think, we oh, we have already. been there before. Yeah, interesting. God, fair enough. That, I mean, it's got me, it's got, I was so excited. And it always, tempering one's excitement and making sure that you realize that, I think it's actually a hopeful message to rephrase it, is like, there are always problems to be worked on. So if you're someone who's interested in sort of like going into these sorts of areas and you care about these problems, even though some people might say, oh, it's solved. It's probably not most of the time. There's probably still more things that need to be done so that your, uh, what did you say, a fa- fountain of, what was it? It's like the, a second expression during the thingy. It was uh, a hope springs eternal. So 
I mean, linking what you've just talked about, so the, the difficulty of, I suppose, innovation in these areas and actually how much more difficult these problems are or how we overpromise stuff. Um, you've also done quite a lot of work with seed banks. Mm -hmm. Do you think the fact that we... So if you had great genetic engineering and we knew how to do this stuff, we wouldn't really need seed banks. Do you see seed banks as important, uh, as being almost more important again like an insurance policy against sort of these technologies not working and what we're doing in, at the moment within the agricultural setting not really working yeah great question so seed banks have their origin as tools for plant breeders i think that's what you're pointing to okay. right so um the first big collections of seeds in long-term storage were put together as basically a kind of library of genetic potential mm -hmm. for breeders to work with uh, in terms of developing different kinds of crops for um, different regions of the world or to, to, to meet new, new kinds of demands. And that was, at least that was the imagination behind them. Um, in the 1960s and 70s, they transformed to also much more significantly be about trying to protect things that might be disappearing forever. So then they, they ended up uh, by the yeah by the 1960s and 70s having this kind of hybrid purpose one which was just to be an immediate resource for breeders and another one that was to make sure that um, different genetic combinations that had arisen over time stayed the same so that a land race of wheat developed in uh, a part of Turkey might still be available for people to access and, and think with in the future um, so if there was some trait which was good but we want to bring back, it's sort of the, where history gives us the lessons that we can use in the future type thing. <laughs> in a way, yeah, absolutely. Written, written in genomes. I like that. Um, but I think uh, uh, your question, I think, assumes that something like CRISPR-Cas9 would give us the ability to engineer whatever trait we wanted. So who needs that seed? Yeah. Right? I mean, I think that assumes that we have an awful lot of knowledge. Yeah, um, so so yeah. I think, you know, my, my own instinct is to say, yes, we should absolutely have collections. We should have seed bank collections. Um, but I think it's important to also put a caveat on the idea of seed banks as insurance policies. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I have learned over the history of, um, uh, sorry, over my own experience of researching the history of, of seed banks is that the kind of insurance policy initially imagined for these institutions would be we would build sound structures, we would have well-equipped staff with high levels of training that would maintain, because... Is this for the seed bank? For the seed bank, right? Because yeah. you can't just put in a seed and then walk away and expect yeah. to come back 20 years later. You know, okay. some seeds need a lot of care, right? Yeah. They don't last that long in storage. Um, and so you would have a a kind of well-resourced institution, and you would have well-resourced staff. The history of seed banks has, has suggested that most states and institutions have been unwilling or unable to make the, the resource investment needed to seed bank really, really well. And that has led us ultimately to a situation where what's seen as the security measure for seed banks is creating copies of the collections. So in case they're not cared for well somewhere, there might be another copy somewhere else. So you replicated across, not just like in the same seed bank, but actually across geographical location. Yes, exactly. So the classic, the sort of media example of this is the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, which is a, an institution uh, of, uh, north of the Arctic Circle, which houses copies of the world's major seed bank collections in the permafrost but it is a copy in smaller numbers i can imagine or then most of the other seed banks have it so the other seed banks might have a larger proportion they have a smaller sample That's right so they would have a, a sort of subset of of the numbers of seeds but so but i think it's really important to note that when when the svalbard global seed vault and and it's you know the institutions behind it describe it as you know the great insurance policy that's an insurance policy based on seeing copies as the route to security which maybe makes a lot of sense in a world where we back up our computers and then we think they're safe. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's worth pausing to think, oh, a well-resourced institution with well-resourced staff versus a copy 
in an inaccessible location. What kinds of security does each of those institutions promise and which one do we really want as our insurance policy? Mm. I mean, people might come down on that question differently. I, I sort of know where I do, but um, uh, so I think, you know, it's important to note that seed banks as insurance ha has, has shifted over time as well, in part because we have seen them as not great insurance because we're not willing to fund them. To fund them. Mm. Where do you come down on that question? I mean, I think, and this goes back to some of the things that, that I was saying before, um, one of the things that I think, having researched the history of agricultural research, um, is that public funding for agricultural science across a number of <laughs> domains should, should be increased. We should take that back as a public service. It shouldn't be provided by private industry. And that would include, I think, better publicly funded seed banks. Um, but also, you know, one of the reasons that seed banks were underfunded and was, was in part linked to their not being used as much as they might be as resources for breeders. And that had to do with lack of resources to um, fully catalog and characterize the things that were in them, right? Um, these are tasks that cost money, that take time, but the investment that we would, or the payoff of that investment, would be knowing more about what the world's diversity is mm. and being able to make use of it in really smart ways. Mm. I think one of the this kind of sort of promising outcomes of the current moment is the idea that um, high throughput genomic sequencing might allow us to at least get the genomic information of seed banks better known, so to, to do characterization a little bit more affordably. Mm. We still need to get all that phenotypic and, and ecological responsive data to make sense of the genomic data, but you know, there's a pathway for being able to more efficiently um, uh, characterize, yeah. yeah, get to know what's in a seed bank, and that that could prompt greater use but it requires the initial investment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, what are, so what specifically are seed banks insuring us against? And um, have they really ever been put to use? So I think this goes, so um, seed banks as, you know, what, what breeders would refer to as uh, germplasm collections, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning that's, you know, the, 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 the the breeding material they're going to rely on, yeah, absolutely, they've they've been used, right? In fact, they originate in being a tool for breeders, and they always have been. But I think you're asking a slightly different question, which is, what, have we ever turned to them in an emergency yeah, scenario where <laughs> there's an environmental crisis and we need to be able to respond to, you know, um, like a lethal necrosis in a crop or something like that, or the you know the the problems we're having with Cavendish bananas, right? So massive. Yes, exactly. Disease susceptibility. Um, and I think that there are historically isolated cases of finding in the gene bank collection the, the land race that has a trait that helps with, with addressing a very particular kind of crop um, shortcoming uh, that we need to address. But I think it's, it's really important to note that no accession from a seed bank can be plopped into place in, you know, of a, a, a true land race accession needs plenty of subsequent research and breeding to be developed into or put to use in a, in a, a variety that's then used in contemporary agricultural production, mm -hmm. right? So it's, um, it, that is always going to be a, 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 a pretty expensive and, and, and drawn out process. Um, there was an earlier part to your question, though. Um, so there was, what are the types of insurance that these right. places actually insure us against, which you've sort of, you've sort of partially answered, I suppose, because you've talked about their, their use essentially for breeders to figure out what they can do in future. And I mean, the other use, which is the emergency situation type use, which doesn't seem to have happened quite as much. Are there any others apart from that? Or have I characterized that really badly? <laughs> no, no. Well, so I think the one thing that I would add to that is that we've been talking about seed banks that are mostly sort of state-run mm. or internationally managed big gene bank type infrastructures. But obviously, 
collections of crop diversity can come in different forms. And so you also have community seed banks or seed libraries. You have um, sort of middle range institutions that are not necessarily about long-term storage, but are about um, feeding diversity back into a, a, a particular region, for example. Um, and so I think it's important to recognize that collections of crop diversity, um, even if they're not the big state institution, and maybe more often because they're not the big state institution, might serve much more direct and immediate needs, right, in, in terms of particular communities. So there are community seed banks in, um, um, for example, in, in, in Mexico, I'm familiar with some, um, and, and they were initially set up through the state, but um, seed banks that uh, were community run where farmers could access them. So a farmer who, for whatever reason, lost their seed, a bad harvest, or some other reason, could withdraw a deposit, restart their uh, agricultural production, possibly give some seed back to that seed bank in the future. And so that's an example that, you know, points in the direction that these sorts of collections of of crop diversity can be truly influential uh, in emergency circumstances, just not emergencies on the scale that we're often on talking national about. national scale. It's almost like, I suppose, banking on the smaller scale when it used to be done by your local branch manager than it was by sort of HSBC or something like that. It's like, it's sort of smaller scale, but it has come up important as an important thing in, those, in that context. Yeah. Um, slightly broader question, uh, but with the challenges agriculture faces today and the changes it needs to make um do you see it as being able to overcome those challenges with relative ease in the grand scheme of things or do you think that actually agriculture is in for an almighty shake-up over the next hundred years or so i i hope it's in for a shakeup, I think. Um, <laughs> no, I, I don't think the transitions that we will go through in, in almost any, <laughs> any domain will be easy um, if, we're, if we're committed to resolving the climate crisis and instituting more socially aware and just institutions both at the global level and at the regional or, or national level, right? I mean, those are, that's gonna require change that's not just about agricultural change. It's gonna be about the, the things that we prioritize in, in, um, as communities, as countries, right? Um, or, or even in our own lives. And so um, yeah, I think, um, One of the things that's that I, I think is is often hard to navigate is that in, especially somewhere like the UK, there can be quite strong feelings about well we need alternative agriculture, right? You know the, um, we haven't talked at all really about about GMOs and the and the contests over GMOs, but um, there are significant camps that want to see us kind of throw away all the technologies that we have and go return to some, some idealized past that that we we can't return to we are more people on smaller pieces of land and we still want to have biodiversity too so we we need to use the tools of science um, um, we need to use uh, genetic uh, engineering or, or gene editing to develop crop varieties that can do better than what we have now there's I think no question about that right and so I think the real challenge is finding the space where all the people who want to do things different, the people with the gene editing tools who want to make crops that can be um, grown and allow greater sensitivity to, to our biodiversity needs, uh, and the people who want um, uh, you know, greater diversity in the food system or, or social justice and equity. I mean, I think they are the same groups of people, but they have different views about the roots the roots that we get there vis-a-vis -vis science and technology. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, creating the conversation that's at the middle of that, right? How do we create change and not 
not throw away the incredible, incredible knowledge and tools that we have. I don't know where that conversation is taking place, but I think that's the one, that's the one that we really need to be having more of. Do, I mean, in the history of changes in agriculture, do those conversations take place in central places or, or do they actually sort of resolve themselves just with, um, you know, new, new stable points in whatever the structure is you're talking about, say like the agricultural structure or the, whether it be sort of financing or what people think about it, what they eat, do they just find new equilibria? Um, I'm thinking about this totally from a mathematical, I'm just going like, like maps and topologies and stuff like that, but maybe that's an oversimplification. Yeah, I mean, to take a kind of wild, a wild case, you know, we could, we could totally transform the possibilities for the future if everybody ate less meat. Yeah, but right? does that happen? Right, yeah. does that happen? Well, you know, um, uh, <laughs> 100 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to hold the position that I hold now, mm. right? Because of assumed capacities about women. Mm. Um, and so... What does that mean? So public ideas shifted really dramatically to make possible a kind of radical social change. Um, didn't happen easily, but it happened. Right? And if we go back further in time, we used to, um, you know, uh, uh, there was slavery in this country and many others. And um, that moral wrong uh, was addressed, right? So we might think there could be a future time where we see eating meat as a moral wrong mm. and that a mass social transition could happen. And we might think it's morally wrong because of the ultimate consequences on climate. There might be other reasons that people mm. see, but um, we social opinion about change. behaviors and 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 laws and legal structures it, it does change, right? I always think G GM is uh, GMOs are a massive case in this. I mean, I'm I could be totally wrong with this, but uh, sort of putting my stake in the ground, I I think that there will probably be a time in the future where we look back and go why the hell didn't we do this sooner? And I think that's going to be the line that will take in future rather than rather than this is a disaster. But but that's just me. That's what it's always important to have different people with different ideas. Um I suppose fighting it out in the fighting it out in the space of ideas of what's going to work and not work. Yeah. I mean I think um crises of various kinds will also um, precipitate change. Yeah. Um, you talked, we, we talked about the desire for cheap food, but it may be that we cannot sustain its current levels of cheapness. And will that change um, what people what people eat when they have to spend more money on on food? It almost certainly will, right? Mm. Um, and so, how do we respond creatively um, to to new challenges as they arise? Um, yeah, crises also become points uh, at which conversations can happen. So actually one more question mm -hmm. on those lines. Are you the type of person that looks at uh, the changes required as um, changes that will occur by evolution or changes that will occur by revolution? Do we need to upend some things or actually is this something where we will go and find a new maxima? Or minimum. Hmm. In terms of, uh, in terms of your new, your, a stable point in, I suppose, the sphere of agriculture um, and farming in future. I, I think it's. It's too contingent on how rapidly the climate changes, mm. um, and what the trajectory of, of global population is, right? Mm. How many people do we have to feed um, and under what conditions? And I actually, I'm sure there are researchers who know much better what those trends are likely to be or, or what are they projected to be and, and how able we will be to respond. But it is hard from my 
thinking about things to say which is needed without the context of the yeah, future how can you how can you project a future context of stability under those circumstances mm. okay yeah no fair enough um yeah is there anything else that you think we need to cover or yeah no that was great fun i'm sorry <laughs> I know, I've got to say thank you very much for um for taking the time to go over all of this with me it's i think there's some really really interesting perspectives or ways of thinking one about the solutions that um are potentially out there at the moment and and just just about the trends in agriculture i think it's such a fascinating area that is is uh it's going to change so much so thank you oh, well thanks for having me Thank you for listening to this episode of the Biotech Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the show or the researchers we've been talking to, you can either check out the description on your podcast player or head over to our website at thebiotechpodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please reach out with thoughts and comments about the show.